Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, I talk to Laura Maines. Laura is a seasoned customer experience strategist and innovator, passionate about finding new human-centric solutions to challenging business problems. She believes that the best answers in customer experience come between the line of emotional and intellectual quotient. Let's hear more from Laura. So Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk to us at Local Sessions and for the podcast. Um, please just introduce yourself to our audience and share what you're best known for. I am Laura Maines. I am a customer experience strategist and a change agent. So I love thinking about how people engage with brands and uh, companies and how we can create a better experience for them. So following on from that, you say you're obviously known for your strategic brilliance and customer experience strategy and for online experiences and direct to consumer retailers and shaping the physical retail landscape, like you mentioned there. Um, you seem to be able to think about every touch point in the customer journey. But our first question is, do you have the same sort of first step each time or is that project dependent? Well, it depends what the mandate of the project is, but if I'm brought in to help a company reimagine how it goes to market, then the first step is always basically mining mining the business and the customer for as much information as you can to understand where they stand relative to competitors, where they stand relative to reference points that their customers might be uh, thinking of when they're interacting with brands and of course going direct to the customer and understanding why they like a brand and past customers or non-customers and why they don't choose that brand because you can't start reinventing unless you're putting the customer at the center center of everything you do. And something that you often talk about is defining a business's North Star as, as, as it's coined and uncovering its sort of distinct value proposition and sort of targeting the right customer base and in the, in the sort of brainstorming session, who do you get involved first? So a lot of strategy work tends to focus on, I would say, you know, the C-suite. But I think you need to go at least a layer down to the people who are actually running the different aspects of the business to understand where they see opportunity, where their challenges are so that you can start to develop an understanding of where the business is today and where it could go. Because there are a lot of great ideas and, and wish lists among leaders in the business often that give a good indication of where the business could go, but for whatever reason, it hasn't gone there. And so I think that within the business, there's often a lot of really smart, ambitious people who, if you gave them a magic wand and asked them what they would change about their business, a lot of time the answer is right there in the room. And as, with, as well as coming up with this North Star, is it, it's important to make sure that everyone can sort of articulate and embody it. And what steps do you take or would you suggest to make sure that everyone understands and act and can act alongside there and in, in, in accordance with the North Star? Yeah, the most important thing is that everyone should feel part of the journey to build it. So people don't tend to get passionate about an idea that's handed to them. They tend to get passionate about an idea they help create and bring to life. And then they become the advocate for those new new visions of the future. And so that's how you rally people around it, is you include them early. 
And that can even include all the way to the front line. So in my in my work in building retail strategy, yes, we work with the C-suite. Yes, we work with the, the leaders of all of the different cross-functional divisions. But I also love having workshops with people who are in the stores, talking to store managers, talking to the product experts that give advice on the floor to customers every day, and really getting them to share their perspective. And then sharing back the vision that's created with them and they can see their own contributions and that they have been listened to. And that is the first step in getting real buy-in at every level of an organization. Because it's one thing to build a beautiful strategy on a page that makes a lot of sense in a boardroom. It's another thing entirely to build a strategy that can be executed effectively and with true conviction by the front line. Brilliant. And, and what companies do you think of that do this quite exceptionally well? Uh, Lululemon is, I would say, the gold standard for living its brand. It it really lives its own value system in healthy lifestyles, in body in- inclusivity, in encouraging people to feel great in what they're working out in so that they don't have to think about it. They can just focus on their achievements uh, and celebrating the diversity of different kinds of activity. It's not just about, you know, some brands focus on the, the you know, the basketball or the yoga. They're really all sports. And so it's a very inclusive brand. And I think the people that work in the stores are recruited, not just on the basis of can you sell yoga pants, but are they themselves a person who values fitness, who cares also about style and can be a true ambassador of the brand, right? Because when I'm going into a store, I don't, I'm not interacting with the CEO or the head of product. I'm interacting with the person right in front of me, helping me find the right thing. And that's, to me, a really great brand that has thought of every element of its customer journey uh, extremely well. So they deliver not only on the promise of the product, but they deliver on service. And most brands have a really hard time doing both of those things well. Most brands tend to deliver on service or on product, but doing both equally well is very rare. So going on from there, we know you to go beyond the sort of traditional consultant approach of handling over a strategy document and that you like to stay engaged in the process of implementation as well. And what, why is that? Because as I said, unless unless you're really finding a way to operationalize the strategy, it's just going to wither and die. <laughs> so yes, many consulting groups, and I won't name them, but they actually pride themselves on being the ivory tower, on being the intellectual thought leaders that will push the executives to dream further and stretch harder and be more ambitious. And they don't like staying around to implement because they see that as, you know, getting your hands dirty and that's the drudge work. But that's actually the most critical point is figuring out how to translate a beautiful vision into an actionable plan that ties to logical operating models and to true financial upside. So a lot of design firms will also then come back with the store of the future that's beautiful but it is completely impractical to rule it out. You can't build a $10 million store for every one of the stores if you have 300 outlets. It's absurd. And so sticking around to figure out how to make things stick in a really practical way 
is actually the hardest unsung hero part of strategic transformation. And so when I left consulting and the firm I was at, actually the, all the projects, the condition was we would sell at least a year, not because we were trying to squeeze more money out, but to say, if you really want this to stick, you, you will want us to stick around for a year. Uh, I left to then go and be an executive at a retailer because I wanted to taste my own medicine. I wanted to make sure that the strategy I was building could actually be implemented because really believe in my, I couldn't really believe in my own hype, I guess, until I knew that I could create something with an eye to implementation and then actually have a, a program or a plan to see it through. You like to emphasize relationship dynamics and the success of business models and risk management in the implement implementation phase. And why is that? Because business is people, all right? It's all it is. I mean, I don't know if you've read Sapiens by Yuval Harris, but uh, I think that's his name. But basically he talks about this concept that most of what humans are created is not real, right? It's, these are figments of our imagination. Laws are imagined, right? Like a lot of a lot of constructs that we've created in society are imagined. And that's true of most businesses, right? Like the idea of a services business helping another services business, like all of that. If your dog looked at it, it's not a thing. So, so <laughs> I say this as a preface in that I am, I am acutely aware that this whole, I'll call it a bit of a fiction of the business world is, is built on shared systems and beliefs that people have created, right? Like this is what Six Sigma is. This is what agile is. These are, these are constructs, right? Fundamentally, these are just organizing systems for people to work more efficiently and effectively together. That's all these big fancy systems are. And so the reason I care is not because I'm a big champion of, you know, enterprise risk management systems. It's that I want to make sure that every critical person involved in the change understands the objective understands their role and and has a organizing premise and or some kind of organizing system to help them get things done effectively. So that's why I am, I, I, I don't want to create bureaucracy, but I do believe in you know, some kind of structure and tools and common language for people to use so that when you are trying to do a full store transformation or a full service retraining rollout. You need some kind of system to do that. And you do also need to be minding, uh, mindful of potential challenges. So bio risk management is just, it's not sexy, but it's important so that you, you know, before you set out on your journey, you're packing the right equipment. What a wonderful <laughs> barrel of analogies there. Oh, that's wonderful. But I speak in my, you can tell me to speak in plain English. Just be prepared. And, and going from that, have you always been good at bridging the gap between an, a well-articulated strategy and its effective implementation? Or is it something that you've had to work on? No, I'm not, I mean, I've never been always good at anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit Every, of a trick question, then. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, no I, I think everyone starts as a novice. And I think by learning from really great 
teachers and mentors and watching them in action and seeing some projects go well and some go less well and analyzing why that might be has helped cultivate my appreciation for the people dynamics, the, the, the melding of the EQ and the IQ together being the perfect way to actually get people to do things differently, which is all transformation is. And so I would say I have worked really hard at cultivating my EQ over the years. I've always been, an, I would say, an extroverted people person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good at people. It means you like people. But being good at people is a different thing, right? And so I've spent a lot of time and effort developing my my powers of observation, of thoughtful inquiry, of sometimes being more quiet than my natural inclination, to listen more, as I think the Dalai Lama says, when you speak, you're going to say, sure, say what you know when you listen you may learn something new and so I've really tried to cultivate my listening and observing muscles so that I can be more aware of dynamics of subtext of nuance of fear of frustration because all of those things can really derail derail a process if not dealt with well I really like that uh, definition of um, an extroverts it's it's always something that's seen as uh, what you are. Never, I've never heard it defined as what you like and what you are being as, as two different things. It's, it's quite interesting. Now. Some of the most introverted people I know, I think, are the are the best at people because they're always listening and observing. And so I think they're the my favorite thing. Actually, after a challenging meeting, is to ask the introvert in the room what they thought. And you're going to get a really good answer because they were taking it all in and processing processing it in their mind in real time. So just because they weren't speaking, it doesn't mean they weren't adding value. You just have to make sure you tap into them after. This sort of beckons back a little bit into um, the example of Lululemon that you, you mentioned earlier. How do you split your time between discussions of with a board and implementing what they say to customer-facing teams? Do you spend more time with one than the other, or is it more of a balance in act? The board's role, I see the board's role as they hire the leadership, obviously. They work with that leader to set the strategy for the business, and then they manage, and then their job is to manage risk, right? Because so, their job is to make sure that the company performs on target. So it's can there can be boards that are more hands-on and develop the strategy when I think the leadership team is perhaps less good at it frankly or there needs to be a massive change and so the board beans in but in a well-functioning mature organization i would expect that it's the leadership team that's really doing the heavy lift on the strategy and they're bringing it to the board for their input and thoughts but it should be pretty baked by the time it comes to the board you should only be bringing things to the board for their input if there are roadblocks or challenges that the board, you need the board's help unlocking like a regulatory constraint or you need, you're going to need more capital in the next year to invest in this thing. Is that possible? Right. Or we're going to need to majorly restructure this business or we're going to need to make an acquisition. If those are higher order issues, I think those go to, but I think a good competent leadership team 
should be able to develop a good plan. I mean, they can obviously hire expertise and help, but I think it falls in their lap. I think that's their accountability. And so typically, I've always worked with the leadership teams to build a strategy together, which then they bring to the board uh, for input. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. We know you as someone who is obviously, you know, trying to make the world a better place. And obviously a part of that is the importance of women's initiatives in the workplace. And it's always been something that's obviously really important, but why do you feel like it's important to you now more than ever? I was having a really great chat with uh, another female leader, female leader this morning, leader who happens to be female. the president of a big successful business. And she also, like me, has three children, very part of it. And we were remarking that the world has, we've noticed a change, I would say in the last decade, but there's still more to go in terms of achieving more notice and improvement in societal norms around both partners sharing the load equally and normalizing that if a child is sick, it isn't automatically the mother that stays home. If a child forgets their lunch at school, it isn't automatically the mother they call to say your kids for their lunch. I mean, it happened to me two weeks ago. I was on a business trip and the school called me to tell me my daughter had a tummy ache. And I said, that's great. I'm in Miami but my partner is five minutes away from the school and works from home and would be delighted to come collect her. Uh, so, and so I'm fortunate, but I'm fortunate to be in that position, right? Yes, they called me first. I don't think they'll ever stop calling me first, but the fact that I do have parity in my own relationship, I hope that to be a good example to others who are thinking about becoming parents. And I, and I'm very pleased to see how enthusiastic many fathers in the workplace are now to proudly talk about coaching their kids' team or needing to miss a meeting because they need to attend their kids' Christmas concert or taking their kid to the pediatrician. I think the more we just do it and talk about it, it becomes less of a thing, if that makes sense. So I really like to keep modeling that for example, when I had people on my team, men on my team, and they'd say, my, my child is ill, uh, but it's okay. I'll ask my wife to stay home with them tomorrow and I can come in. And I said, isn't your wife the chair of a department at a major university? Doesn't she teach live lectures? How could she stay home without, right? Like they need her there. <laughs> she, I said, you, you just need to build a spreadsheet. So why don't you just do that from home with your kid and your wife should go to work? And he looked at me, yes, that would be better. And I said, well, why didn't you just, like it took me suggesting, but I'm trying to normalize it to say it is I don't, not automatically, you know, the, the father in a, in a, you know, male, female relationship that needs to stay home or that, that goes to work and the mother deals with the male. So I think come a long way, more to come. I think. And I was actually reflecting how 
awful it must have been for prior generations of men who felt that they needed to be the provider, who always needed to work out of the home, who would leave early in the morning to show their face at the office before the boss arrived and leave after their boss and come home and barely see their children and have to have the, you know, the stiff upper lip about it. No wonder there was a big midlife crisis epidemic among men. Because if that was your life and you didn't feel like you could openly care for your children or openly express your love for your children in the way that I think fathers do now in the workplace, it must have been quite awful, to be honest. And so I'm really, I think it has been benefiting women as much as, and men equally in getting to a more equitable place where fathers can openly be very active parents in society and it's not a stigma. There's a lot to unpack there and (laughs) (laughs) it it leads really nicely into the next question that I'll have for you. You you touched on it maybe a little bit there about the leader that you spoke to early today is who's been a role model to you during your professional career so far in, in this aspect? I've been so fortunate to have so many role models, both men and women. And I would say what they all shared in common and what I admired about them was that they did have this balance of the IQ and the EQ. And they all did something or had a capability or a way about them that I wanted to learn from and emulate in some way. And so I would say my various mentors ranged from the classical working mother who had found a way to forge her own career forward while still being a good parent to male leaders who did convey empathy and true caring for their teams in a in an environment where typically the alpha male persona is the the classical standard for leadership and they they were forging their own path too and I think I admire that also I've also learned a lot of really great lessons about professional integrity from a lot of people who stood by their convictions, who would stand up for others, who would uh, not be afraid to tell the client when they were behaving badly, you know, to protect their own teams. And those are the those are the brave things that step out of the norm. And the more you see those things modeled in front of you and see that the world won't fall if you tell the client, you know, it's Friday at six o'clock and you came in with a lot of changes. You can't have it at Monday, 9 a.m. Sorry. You can have it Tuesday, end of day. And I think the more the more I, I'd see that modeled and, and the sky wouldn't fall, the more I there could be a better way of people working together that could still do great work, but do it in a really humane way. Bring me back to what we were talking about just previously. Um, what can others do to support these initiatives, like specific women's initiatives in, in, in the workplace? It starts, I think, from hiring, to be honest, right? Like the profiles of people that we are willing to get a chance, right? So accepting gaps in a resume doesn't, you can't assume that's because, oh, they were unemployable for a year. No, they were probably raising a job, um, <laughs> which is important for a society. Um, even, even I was talking to our HR Uh, leader last week about removing bias in job postings 
there's certain language that I think are kind of dog whistles for what one would call a traditional male leadership style and using more neutral language. And that goes both ways. Sometimes there are, there are words that cue, I think, a male, quote, classical male approach to it or a classic female approach to it. But the more you can neutralize the language, I think that actually goes a long way in people self-selecting into roles that they might otherwise not see themselves in because it's described in a certain way. Even taking names off resumes, and I think that not only for women, but for all, for diversity, period, removes an implicit bias that I think still exists bearing. So having blind resume screens where you're just literally looking at someone's credentials, uh, I think would also go a long way. And that's filling the funnel with more eligible candidates and, and opening the consideration set, I think is step one. And then step two in the workplace, there are a lot of norms and rituals, I think, that historically have been seen as those classical business um, things like golf tournaments, after work beers, uh, having sports betting pools in the workplace. And I'm not saying women can't like beer or play golf or bet on sports. I do all those things. But it just creates this perpetuation of the 1950s classical image of what workplace uh, cohesion and culture building is all about. And so the we can create more inclusive norms, the more I think it makes people who are, were previously made to feel that they didn't belong, that they do belong. So I've been in many rooms where I was the only woman and 20 years younger than my peers. And the only person in the room who happened to actually be a member of the target customer segment this business was trying to serve. And no one thought to ask me what I thought. They all had the answer <laughs> of what the busy working mother might need in her life. And it's just, it's honestly funny at that point. So I think, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more to be done. But I'm very confident in the next generation being the one that will do it because already I've seen so much movement forward in the appreciation of simple things like pronouns and knowing that words, words matter, how you refer to someone, how you catch yourself when you're saying something that's stereotypical, how we are embracing different even dress codes in the workplace that formerly favored the, you know, man in a blue banker suit ideal of what a business person was, which is kind of better. Uh, all of that, I think the, the generation behind, so the Gen Zs, I think the millennials did a lot, but I think the Gen Zs are going to be the true inclusive generation. I, I completely agree. Uh, it sort of turns that old adage on its head of actions speak louder than words. I think actions and words are equal or equal. And if you just take that extra beat of just thinking about what you're going to say and let your mouth and let your mouth catch up to your brain, you can you can resolve so many issues before it even happens by just taking that extra step to think, oh, is that that's not right? In so many walks of life, I have been as all women 
involved in situations where I was spoken to or referred to in a way that was frankly unacceptable. And I've gone to HR exactly one time for that out of maybe the 20 or 30 times I could have. And that time I went, they were very empathetic. They heard me out, but nothing changed. So I've learned, it's learned helplessness. So that's not, you know, and that was the first and last, and I only did it because I was at that point a senior executive at the company. And I thought, if I don't speak out, this is probably happening to others. And I have a position of authority. So hopefully my going to HR will actually carry a lot of weight. And then it really didn't. So again, <laughs> won't bother. So I think, yes, there's a long way to go, I think. But again, next generation will tolerate that much less. It's sad as well because the if, in that exact scenario, perceptions can be that you're the person who's rocking the boat by going to HR, by using HR for the exact purpose that they're used for, that it's, it's negative. It's already negatively spun onto you for, for no real reason, for something that was never your fault in the first place. It's, it's, it's insane. And with that, that sort of wraps up our main sort of question set and we can go into our quickfire round. If animals could talk, which species do you think would be the rudest? Cat. <laughs> Bang on the money, to be fair, someone just came home to a household of two cats that just... It ranges from disinterested to genuinely bad shit. So yeah, they speak with their eyes. Like, yeah, they really do. I, I just saw one on the sidewalk. I, I I could tell that I was deeply inconveniencing it with my own <laughs> my dare to <laughs> What makes someone uh, a good traveling companion? Are you, are you a big traveler or not? I am a very big traveler. A good travel companion packs light says yes to new experiences and is willing to spend some money to have great experiences. In, in another life, what would your career be, do you think? Okay, it's a running joke in my house <laughs> that I think I'm quite funny and that I would make have made a terrific comedian. And then I am very quickly cut down to size by everyone <laughs> who tells me in no uncertain terms that I would not be good at that. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given yourself? Okay, here, I don't know if it's the all-time best, but here's one the first that popped into my mind. First year university, we were all nervous first years. And you had to choose all your courses and declare your major. And we were all terrified of choosing wrong. And I happened to have a friend stop by that day who was, you know, more senior at that university, had been there a few years. And he'd known me many, many years. And I said to him, what do I do? All of us were so stressed out. And he just looked me in the face and said, don't try and picture what job you're going to have in 10 or 20 or 30 years. That's impossible to know. All you have is right in front of you. Study what you love, because if you study what you love, you'll enjoy it and you'll do well because you can. And I did that and he was right. I really, really loved what I studied in undergrad. I did international relations and I did an Italian minor and I went abroad to Italy and studied there and had the best time and did really well in those courses because I enjoyed them. 
And then later, I had a nice transcript to apply to grad school. So he was, and, I, and then I went to business school and got a very respectable business job. But I had a really great four years. And I'm glad he gave me that. That was really good advice. Yeah, it's something that gets said a lot, but also doesn't get said enough at the same time. I feel like people don't, aren't reminded of it enough. And that brings us on to our final question. And it's something we ask everybody. It's sort of our trademark uh, closer. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the weirdest, how weird are you? Oh, I'm like solid seven. <laughs> I really like, I really like quirky people. I really enjoy people who think differently. I I delight in contrarian points of view. I delight in, like I said, irreverence, in finding things funny that you should not find funny, um, and being a little silly. Yeah, I'd say I'm pretty weird, and I'm very proud of that. That's that's everything we have for uh, for you today, Laura. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. It's been it's been a blast. It's yeah. Well, I hope you splice it together in such a way that makes me sound uh, more intelligent and and more uh, succinct than I am. No need. Already perfect, right there. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com. 